Welcome to AML Now. I'm John Byrne and uh, this particular edition we sat down with Danny Glazer. Danny Glazer, a former Treasury official in a variety of capacities, talked to us about a number of important topics, but particularly the um, wide use of sanctions uh, and how sanctions are so important as a national security tool in areas such as North Korea, Iran, uh, Venezuela, and other places. He's also going to share with us um, some of his thoughts about working in the anti-money laundering field for, for a great number of years. I was very uh, pleased to be able to sit down with him. I think, as you know, Danny's going to be one of our keynote speakers at the Vegas conference coming up at the end of the September. So we were able to give you a little bit of a preview with our conversation with Danny Glazer. Danny, um, as we're recording this, the uh, North Koreans have launched yet another missile, but this time in Japanese airspace. And we'll never know day to day, and by the time this gets posted, which will probably be right after Labor Day, who knows what happens in the next four or five days. But what I want to ask you about specifically is we, um, we saw some uh, commentators talk this morning about, you know, so what do you do? North Korea has been an issue for a long, long time, not just obviously with this administration, but from a financial standpoint, there was suggestions that doing more with China in terms of potential sanctions, looking at some of their banks, is perhaps a way to go. A, does that make any sense? And B, with your experience in the financial part of what we're talking about here, what, what sort of is a, is, a, uh, is a positive strategy from, from your background? Well, John, as you know, I've been working on North Korea sanctions issues for, for, well, over, for well over 10 years uh, in both the Bush administration um, and in the Obama administration. And applying financial and economic pressure um, on North Korea has always been a great challenge. How do you apply economic pressure on a country that seeks to isolate itself from the world in so many different ways, including economically and financially? That said, the fact that they are isolated does present opportunities as well, because if you could find um, the nodes that give them access and you could put pressure on those nodes, you could really have a big impact. And I think the United States achieved that at various times in 2005 to 2007 with Banco Delta Asia um, and some, uh, some other actions that it's taken over the years. However, the challenge that the United States has faced in more recent years and certainly faces now um, is that partially because of the success that the U.S. has had over the past 10 years in pushing North Korea out of uh, most of the international financial system, North Korea finds itself at a point right now where it gets the vast majority of its access from China. And so the question becomes less, how does the U.S. apply financial pressure on North Korea, and becomes more of how does the U.S. persuade China to apply financial pressure on North Korea, and not just some financial pressure, because if the goal is to bring the North Koreans to the table uh, to have a good faith conversation about actually denuclearizing, uh, you need to bring what I would call an existential level of threat on North Korea, because North Korea, I, I, I firmly believe, thinks that its regime survival 
depends on its possession of nuclear weapons. So, so it needs to be confronted with a situation where its regime survival actually depends um, on it uh, negotiating in good faith those, those, uh, those, those, the, that, that capability away. Um, this is a really, really tough question for the U.S. So uh, one way to do it would be to persuade the Chinese that it's in China's best interest to do it. The United States has been trying to do that for years and has had very little success in doing it, and I don't know that it will have much success in doing it. Um, uh, perhaps a tremendous escalation of tension in the region and a real threat of war might accomplish something like that, but uh, those types of crises uh, tend to you know, have the possibility of spinning out of control. That's why they're considered crises, and I don't know, I certainly wouldn't recommend that we pursue a, a path like that. Um, the other uh, 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 approach that has been discussed a lot, and I think that you were referring to in your question, is is there um, ways for the U.S. to target uh, Chinese financial and economic interests um, in a way that would persuade the Chinese uh, to uh, adjust its North Korea policy? Uh, I think that that would um, be very, very difficult for the United States to do. Um, I think it would require a fairly, uh, a fairly comprehensive effort. Uh, I think there's a lot of other issues uh, exist between the United States and China. Trade issues are obviously big. Right. There's lots of other different uh, issues that are at stake in the U.S.-Chinese relationship. Um, and it would be very interesting for me to see if the United States would be really, really willing to put the U.S.-Chinese relationship um, on the table in that sort of way. I, I, don't, I don't anticipate that the United States will. That's interesting. We, we at ACAMS have actually opened up some um, strong relationships with some of the Chinese financial institutions who've actually asked to get their members certified and go through our program. So we're not naive, but we do think there, that's a positive, at least, that they're going through the motions of making it seem as if their uh, compliance officers and their investigators have AML uh, experience in reporting detection and that sort of thing. So um, that uh, we're very interested because we actually have a pretty robust Asia operations. It's actually based in based in Hong Kong. But again, watching this from afar, not from a diplomatic sense, which we have we have no experience in. Just in terms of training, they have increased their work with us. I have to think, that at least high level. That's a positive. This is certainly different than the North Korean issue that we talked about, but just in general. No, absolutely. I don't think that the major Chinese banks have much interest in doing business uh, with North Korea, uh, particularly the largest Chinese banks. These are global banks which are subject to the same uh, sorts of uh, incentives and disincentives that global banks are all over the world. And they have much bigger fish to fry than, uh, than a relationship with North Korea. Uh, the fact of the matter remains that uh, um, uh, North Korea, even in China, much of North Korea's access is um, not public, uh, and, and to the extent uh, that it is uh, done through cutouts, through front companies, through agents, it might be difficult uh, to uh, uh, to identify, which is why it's so important uh, that Chinese uh, financial institutions bring themselves up to the highest international standards. Right. So it's it's very it's 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 great to hear that they're taking it seriously and 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 uh, getting the training that that they need to do that, and that's certainly something they should continue to pursue. Um, there's also uh, regional Chinese banks and smaller Chinese banks um, that might be less uh, vulnerable uh, to U.S. pressure. Uh, that might be more uh, willing to uh, to take that North Korea business. Of course, those banks themselves uh, then allow these transactions to enter the Chinese financial system in a way uh, that might make larger banks vulnerable. 
Um, I was going to bring this up later, but I think it's probably more contiguous conversation to have now, and that is we talked offline about the work of your company in Qatar, and uh, the question I'll, I'll start with is it's been seen as, um, well, recently there, there's been some controversy, to just put it mildly, regarding Qatar's dedication to uh, anti-terrorism. And your, your company, which we will give folks uh, information about at the end of the podcast, is uh, uh, just signed an agreement to do some work there. And you obviously had some relationships there. Talk a little bit about sort of the perception and uh, your view of the reality of Qatar's role here. And then we'll go back and talk about some broader issues on sanctions and some other things. But I thought, since what you said about China is similar here in that there's a perception about this region or about this particular country, right or wrong, uh, but you folks, you and Juan and Chip and all the strong folks that you have here at your company, uh, obviously have made a decision. We're going to not only work with them, we're going to help and assist. Talk first about Cutter, but also about the work that you see them doing and how you're going to assist them. Well, sure, uh, and it is, it's an interesting issue. Uh, there, as, as, as you said, John, there's a, a, a diplomatic uh, dispute, a crisis uh, uh, brewing in, uh, in the Gulf uh, now that, that really pits um, uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE and Bahrain and then also Egypt uh, on, on, on one side of it. And they've expressed tremendous w uh, frustration uh, with respect to Qatar on a, on a variety of, of, of issues. Um, a lot of this uh, doesn't relate directly to counterterrorism or counterterrorist right. financing, um, but some of it certainly does. And the questions have been raised about um, Qatar's uh, commitment to fighting uh, terrorist financing and cracking down on terrorist financing um, with regard uh, to certain organizations that I think everybody would regard as problematic terrorist organizations, but also with regard to certain organizations that uh, create a bit of a, a, a grayer uh, area, organizations like the Muslim Brotherhood and things like this. Uh, it's a it's a it's a very very complicated uh, uh, situation, and I, I know that even as we speak, um, there are uh, diplomatic talks that are going on to try to resolve some of it. Um, all of that said, as I said before, part of it does involve um, the importance of Qatar doing everything it can uh, to fight uh, terrorist financing. Um, this is something that I personally worked with the Qataris on uh, when I was Assistant Secretary uh, for Terrorist. Uh, for um, terrorist financing and financial crimes at the Treasury Department for five years. Uh, and it's something that I very much look forward to continuing to work with Qatar on. I think, um, obviously, that it's a good sign uh, that they are willing to go out um, and, uh, and, 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 and hire experts in the area to help, to help them uh, do what they need to do. Uh, I do believe that one of the reasons why they hired my firm is because they know uh, that uh, we are going to be tough on them, and they know uh, that if they could satisfy us, that that, that means they're meeting a very high standard. Right. Uh, and I think, uh, and I'm very much looking forward uh, to the to the engagement. If people uh, really mean what they say, that they would like to see Qatar improve in the area of terrorist financing, um, then uh, uh, then the Qataris uh, are going to have the ability to demonstrate uh, that that is precisely uh, what they. Not only intend to do, but what they what they what they are doing, uh, what they are doing now. I want to go back uh, in time a little bit here. the The AML space that uh, you and I have both been involved in for many many years, interesting, has evolved to where it is today, where there's so much 
collateral responsibilities than there were, say, 10, 15 years ago. And, and one of those areas is sanctions. From this perspective, I can remember working with the Bar Association when I was with the bankers to do our money laundering conferences, and we would invite the State Department or OFAC to participate, and they would say, no, sanctions and OFAC, that's completely different from money laundering, uh, and we, we can't have that. Actually, this is pre-9-11. And we always thought, well, we know that people in those institutions have some of these responsibilities, so we don't understand the reticence. After 9-11, and obviously the horrific attacks um, that we've seen since then, terrorist attacks, sanctions have become a really excellent, or always perhaps was, national security tool. And AML professionals certainly understand where sanctions fits in. If you can, sort of walk us through the early days of sanctions from your perspective and where we are today, because it seems like you can't pick up a paper uh, anywhere without some reference to some sort of sanctions, whether it's in the U.S. or U.N. sanctions or EU sanctions, whatever. And I, I think almost anybody, no matter if you agree with the target of the sanctions or not, agree that it's a valuable and useful tool. Wasn't always considered that way. Seems to be now. Can you sort of, how it started and where we are today? Sure. How, how, how much time we got, John? <laughs> right. I, uh, I actually, uh, Chip Ponce and I taught a course at Georgetown University Five on, weeks, on right? this. Yeah. That was like a whole semester, <laughs> whole semester long. Yeah. Um, I'll, try to, I'll try to compress it into the, into the five-minute version, but you're exactly right. And it's one of, I think, the more interesting uh, developments is the whole notion, I, I talk about this anyway, the whole notion of uh, there being a field of illicit finance, that illicit finance is a field. Uh, that uh, that covers what, as you said, had previously been thought of as a variety of very, very diverse and separate sets of issues, whether it's AML. And remember, before 9-11, AML-CFT wasn't even AML-CFT, it was Absolutely. AML. That's right. And then CFT came after that. That's so right. you had AML, you had CFT, you had sanctions, you had anti-bribery and corruption. Mm -hmm. And all of these things um, sort of you know evolved um, from, from different sorts of places. Uh, and then it's only been actually relatively recently, even after 9/11, well after 9/11, that people started thinking about them as one um, as one as one area. And I think that that's a, I think that's a, a, a helpful development. I think it's an important development. Uh, I think that when you sort of look back historically um, at it, the key moment, and I'm 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 sort of I'm a big nerd on this, so I could I could actually cite to these these obscure moments. Um, but in the late 90s, when Larry Summers became Secretary of the Treasury, uh, he, would, he used to talk about uh, building a, a new international financial architecture, mm -hmm. post-Cold War international financial architecture. And he um, would talk about pillars to that architecture. There are a variety of pillars to that architecture. And what was really exciting about being you know, part of uh, Secretary Summers' team at the time was that he identified anti-money laundering as a pillar of the international financial architecture and talked about it in terms of protecting the international financial system from abuse. Well, that was, it seems almost trite to say it now, but it was not trite to say it back then. It was actually fairly radical to say it back then. And what was radical about it was that it was the first time that you had a finance ministry asserting an interest in money laundering from a non-law enforcement perspective to say, of course, the work that we would do at the Treasury Department to support the DEA and the FBI and other law enforcement was important, but that's not the only reason why we were doing it. We were doing it because we had a perspective on the international financial system, and we were doing it um, to, to better equip the international financial system to deal with risk and stress. Uh, 
And once you start thinking about that, you're inevitably going to get to all the other stuff. And so over time, um, we've seen how all this stuff becomes inter, uh, interconnected when you're thinking about it from the systemic view of the financial system rather than the specific, there's a law enforcement investigation into this guy, or you know, we're concerned that this guy's corrupt, or we want to put financial pressure on Iran or another target. When you start seeing how it all becomes interrelated, and it's all about really transparency within the international financial system. How do we make the international financial system a hostile environment uh, for uh, for illicit activity, not how do we completely get illicit activity out right. of the international financial system. We'll never do that, and that really shouldn't be the goal. Um, but how do we make it a hostile environment for that type of um, uh, activity? And and the answer is transparency. And then you get into all sorts of really interesting discussions about how all that fits together, beneficial ownership or customer due diligence, mm -hmm. technology, all sorts of things. But it all is about um, animating uh, the whole system. Uh, I. And, and, and you could never have a conversation, you say, today, where uh, somebody says, well, I'm a sanctions guy. I'm not really interested in anti-money laundering because right. it's the information that the customer due diligence that emerges from AMLCFT produces that allows a, a sanction system to be effective. That's just one example. Um, but so it's been, it's, been, it's been great to be part of that evolution. Yeah, so with, um, with sanctions, you obviously have sanctions against individuals, against entities, <laughs> against countries. Uh, against drug traffickers, and so it really has expanded. What what I'm curious about is, um, you folks have looked at the recent sanctions against Venezuela, and now I'm going to ask you to, to kind of slice and dice that, but one of the areas that you talk about is sort of collateral impact. So when a sanction is set up against, so the question is not so much about Venezuela, but it's about when a sanction is set up and it's directed against a particular institution, particular person or drug trafficker, what, what's the thought process of those that are pushing for those sanctions about some of the collateral impacts, good and bad? I assume there's some negatives that can occur that perhaps are not the intention of those. I, I'm sure you, you sit and you discuss if we do X, Y will occur, which is good, but W will occur, which perhaps is not uh, our goal. But a, as you're preparing to, to push for a sanction, what is the dialogue around collateral impact? <clears throat> sure. Well, again, I think I think it I think it's worth separating jurisdictional targets or broad targets from narrower organizational or, mm -hmm. or entities or individuals. Um, with respect to those, with respect to the the narrow target, someone who's being designated as uh, or an individual or an entity who's being designated as being, say, affiliated with a, a narcotics trafficking organization. Uh, look. You, you, you need to sometimes keep collateral collateral issues in mind. The person might own a, a company that if the company's, um, you know, sort of put out of business, then, you know, thousands of people lose, jobs, lose, yeah. lose, lose their jobs. Right. So you need to understand that going into it. You need to have a dialogue with the, uh, with the, with the, with the government where that company is, and you need to uh, be prepared to try to uh, organize things uh, so that you minimize damage, maybe through licensing or other uh, other steps that you would take. But for the most part, if you think that uh, if you think that that a particular individual or entity is giving a narcotics trafficking organization access to the financial system, you're going to take action to close sure. that down. Mm -hmm. It becomes a more interesting conversation when you're thinking about it uh, jurisdictionally. Uh, previously, when when we're when you're targeting uh, North Korea or even Iran. Uh, even that is a little bit more straightforward. But then when you start talking about 
larger jurisdictions like Russia, or a jurisdiction like Venezuela that's so intertwined in the U.S. economy uh, for energy-related reasons, most importantly and other reasons, it's so intertwined, you then really have to sit down and think to yourself, okay, how do we do this in a way that doesn't blow back um, on the United States' interest or on our allies' interests in Europe? How do, we, how do we structure this in such a way uh, that we're not just shooting ourselves in the foot? How do we structure this in a way that we're taking away something from them that they can't easily find a replacement somewhere else? How do we do it in a way that doesn't just punish our own banks or European banks um, or banks in, 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 in other allied countries? That uh, it becomes a very, very complicated uh, discussion internally within the United States government. Uh, when we sat down and tried to design the Russia sanctions, and I think people who are students of sanctions uh, could see immediately uh, that the Russian the sanctions that we instituted against Russia were qualitatively different from any other jurisdictional program that we've ever had. We, we really came up with a whole new way of approaching uh, those sanctions and things that we were prepared to take away from the Russians. And it was very much because we didn't want to hurt European banks and because we didn't want to disadvantage our own banks and we didn't want to uh, take away stuff from the Russians that they could easily replace elsewhere. But we had to somehow find a way to impose a penalty and impose pain. Right. Um, and what I think is interesting about the Venezuela sanctions, I'm obviously no longer involved in the internal decision making within the US government and frankly have very little insight into it, uh, but uh, they seem to have followed the Russia model which is really interesting for me and very uh, uh, gratifying for me to see uh, that 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 approach uh, to thinking about pressuring a jurisdiction seems to have have uh, have have continued. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit. One of the things that has been a uh, sort of, so, a source of frustration for those of us in the private sector regarding AML, CTF, and sanctions has been. We embrace, and I think generally so do you and your former peers in the government, private-public partnering. I think while there clearly are financial institutions that have violated the law and have been cited and should have been cited, I think there's, there's a feeling that when the government puts strategies together, whether it's money loaning risk assessment or any other sort of public document, that the question is always, how much did you talk to the private sector about this? Now, we, to be fair, we may not know. The, the, the relationships that I know you have over time, I would imagine you could pick up the phone and call to many people in the private sector and ask them thoughts. But while there is a Bank Secrecy Act advisory group, which frankly, uh, I actually wrote the statute that created it, so <laughs> I support the concept, I think there could be much more. And I guess one of the things, now that you're in the private sector, given you're the type of person, frankly, that we would always, in the private sector, hold up and say, we have so-and-so, he or she used to work at the Fed, used to work at an IRS. He or she is now at the financial institution. Talk to this person, because this person now can give you some sense of operational impact and legal impacts that perhaps those on the other side in the government who are interested in it maybe don't know about it. Now that you're on this side, uh, maybe it's too soon to ask, but. What is your strategy, uh, if you have any at this point, of making sure that your clients now, if your clients are in the private sector, get a, a seat at any sort of table where you're talking about strategy? Because to me, for all the, I call it the AML uh, uh, stool, right? You talked about pillars before. We have law enforcement, we have the regulators, and you could put in that policy folks from Treasury and State. Uh, and then we obviously have the private sector. 
one part of those, that stool goes down, it's not that effective. And those of us who have been doing this for 30 plus years always are saying, we know what your goals are, let us tell you what impacts are. Long-winded question, but how do you see it now that you're on the other side? Private-public partnerships, or what more can we do? Yeah, absolutely. I, when I was in government, I was a big fan of public-private partnerships. Obviously, now that I'm in the private sector, uh, I'm a big fan of public-private partnerships. And I do think, you know, look, it's 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 trite to say that you know the the private sector is the front line of of the fight against illicit finance, uh, but it's said so often because it it actually happens to be true. And it's something that we always need to be reminding ourselves. And when I was in government, it's something uh, that I thought was very, very important that we benefit from very, very selfishly as a government official. Um, I understood that people in the private sector were going to have information and perspectives and understanding of things that I just didn't have. Uh, and I wasn't going to be able to do my job as effectively unless I was able um, to, uh, to harness that. Uh, I think the thing. I think the government, um, at least the Treasury Department, when I was there, has gotten a lot better um, at that. And I think we were evolving in a particular direction. And I'll, I, I'll use the example of the of the U.S.-Mexico public-private partnership. And I, I use that because, um, even when I uh, when 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 Jack Lew was Secretary of the Treasury, even he. Uh, and I've attended so many meetings with foreign officials uh, with Secretary Liu, would always point, <coughs> excuse me, he would always point to the U.S.-Mexico public-private partnership as, as a model of the way we should try to organize ourselves with the private sector. Uh, because in, in his mind, and I, I certainly agree with his assessment on it, it was such a successful endeavor. Now, the, the U.S.-Mexico public-private partnership was put together for a particular set of reasons uh, that I was... Uh, that, that I was very closely involved with, and that was initially uh, with the idea being that uh, when we were trying to understand how uh, drug money was flowing between U.S. and Mexico, uh, we would have certain understandings and appreciation of that from the government perspective, but that we thought, gosh, you know, the, the, the banks have got to sort of have some views on this and understanding of how, just, just mapping out sure. how the money's flowing. Right. So we said, well, let's get the U.S. government, the Mexican government, the U.S. banks, Mexican banks all together in the same room and let's talk about this. And that's why it was initially set up. And then, interestingly, what happened was when the whole de-risking sort of episode, issue, whatever you want to call it, sort of uh, presented itself, and it presented itself initially very, very strongly with respect to the U.S. and Mexico, there was very, very senior concern on both sides right. of the border uh, that it was had the potential for causing a... Uh, a real break in, in, in trade relationships between the two countries, which I thought was overblown at the time and turned out to be not be the case. However, there, the, 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 the concern was so intense uh, that we uh, had to figure out a way to start addressing it in a very, very um, intense way. And the U.S.-Mexico public-private partnership was there. And, and this is more to your point that you could use this stuff for so many different things. Right. And so it immediately got turned away from its initial purpose of sort of information sharing. And we say, hey, we already have this group that has bankers and officials from both sides mm -hmm. at the table. Let's use this to understand what's going on in de-risking between the U.S. and Mexico, identify discrete areas uh, that we could work on, and then try to solve those areas, um, solve those issues. And as a result of that group, uh, for example, uh, we identified information sharing obstacles that emanated from uh, Mexican law or regulation, and we were able to deal with those. And, and, and actually, interestingly, as a result of it, uh, information exchange between U.S. and Mexican banks now is on a stronger legal footing, right. a stronger regulatory footing, 
Um, and I, I don't know the numbers, but I hope is that going even even stronger than ever had. That's just sort of one example of how uh, if we're if we're flexible um, and we understand the value that we could derive from working together, we could do big things. And as a result of that group, um, we started creating public-private partnerships in the Caribbean and public-private partnerships uh, in Central America and public-private partnership with China um, and all sorts of other places. And so what uh, what we say to our our, our clients. Um, and what I would what I would say to the private sector in in general uh, is that we should not be passive. We should not be passively sitting back and waiting to get invited to a Bank Secrecy Act advisory group meeting. Right. The Bank Secrecy Act advisory group is fine, uh, but there are so many other ways that we could yeah. be doing this. The Brits right. are, yeah. are 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 I, I know uh, uh, innovating in certain ways, and right. other governments are innovating in certain ways. And I think bankers associations, in particular, uh, should be very proactive in trying to establish mechanisms, and I think governments will, will be very open to it. I, we have started something, our organization, mm -hmm. with the World Bank on de-risking. That's actually been pretty proactive, and it's dealing with the specific area of charities. Mm -hmm. And so at some point we'll talk to you. I'll, I'll get you out on this. I got two quick ones. One is, what is the thing in your career you're most proud of? Oh, gosh. Well. I had, a, I had a great 20-year run um, in the U.S. government and in the U.S. Treasury Department. Uh, I started in the late 90s, and I left just this past January. Uh, and it goes back to the conversation we had a, a bit earlier. When I started, uh, I started in the, in the general counsel's office at the Treasury Department. Um, we were there in a support function. Either those of us who were working on anti-money laundering issues were there in a, a support function, an important support function. Um, for law enforcement, and that was basically how we saw ourselves, and that's what we did. Uh, but what we eventually did after 9-11, and then certainly uh, in particular uh, after the creation of Department of Homeland Security, is reimagine the Treasury Department's role um, in international security, national security and international security. Uh, and we created uh, an office, and we created a whole new approach to national security and foreign policy that harnesses the power of the uh, international financial system and the U.S. financial system in a way uh, to uh, th achieve very, very important goals that otherwise couldn't have been achieved. Uh, when, I, when we started our financial pressure campaign against Iran, uh, I spent seven years having people explain to me how sanctions against Iran could never work. Today, the only thing everybody agrees on with respect to the Iran nuclear deal, the single only thing everybody agrees on, including the Iranians themselves, is that they came to the table for sanctions relief. Uh, and uh, that's one uh, example. There, 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 there are you know, many examples I could put forward. But just the work that we did at Treasury Department to create this new approach to foreign policy, this new approach to national security uh, that harnesses uh, the US's financial strength and the strength of our financial system. Uh, is something uh, that I certainly take a lot of pride in. Um, folks that are listening to this are generally in the AML space and do it because they believe it uh, saves lives and helps people. Any one recommendation to anyone that's uh, uh, thinking about going into AML and why they should? And AML, broadly broadly speaking, you know, CTF, sanctions, all the other things we just we just spent the, the time talking about. But if you're sitting across from someone and they have no idea what this space does, what's the one thing you would, you would recommend them either to do, uh, to learn about, or your own, your own view regarding the value? 
Well, I think the value is enormous, and I th I think that j you just look at, f frankly, uh, the uh, the amount of uh, money that's spent on AML compliance by financial institutions on an annual basis to see uh, that's something that financial institutions regard as, as something that's important for them to be doing. But what's I think sort of cool and interesting about it is it's still a field uh, where where you could be creative. It's a it's a it's a, a new field. It's a young field. It's an early field. You know, money laundering wasn't even a crime in the United States until 1986. This is like right, new, right. and so there's so much room for innovation. There's so much room for development. It's still sort of a work in progress. There are still so many flaws in the way we approach it. Uh, there's so many ways we could improve it. Uh, the challenge is it's sort of like, you know, uh, repairing a, an airplane while it's still flying. You need to figure out how you fix it without crashing the plane. Uh, and and so it, 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 there's, there's such a, an opportunity uh, for creative people to come into this field uh, and think about how it could be improved in, through, through the use of technology or through, or through the use of public-private partnerships w between governments um, and, and, and financial institutions or, or so many other, other ways. And, uh, and it's something, it's, 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 it still keeps me energized um, and it's allowed me to, to, to transition from government to the private sector in a very smooth way that's kept it interesting and fun and exciting for me and I, I think that that's probably the case for lots of people. Danny, I want to thank you for taking the time. We're really looking forward to your comments in Vegas at the end of September. Um, also, the work that you've done in your career, uh, really appreciate your dedication, and we know that that dedication is now in the private sector. So thanks a lot for your time today. No, thanks for having me, John. I look forward to being in Las Vegas as well. Well, as you can tell, that program could have gone on for at least another half an hour. Uh, Danny is a wealth of information and the passion that is so important to AML comes through very clearly. Uh, whether you talk to him um, on issues with sanctions or counterterrorism, it doesn't, doesn't matter. And obviously, he's dedicated his life uh, to government service, and now he's in the private sector working closely with governments um, th uh, throughout the globe. And that's obviously important uh, from an AML perspective. He's with the Financial Integrity Network. That's an organization that does strategic advisory work. They do it with foreign governments, with uh, institutions based here and abroad, and with uh, colleges and universities. They do training, advice, and obviously uh, program creation, you know, among many other things that they do. So I would direct you to their webpage, which is financialintegritynetwork.net. Uh, in that organization, besides Danny, is Chip Ponce, who's well known to ACAM's audiences, who's done a variety of programming for us, and Juan Zarate, who is a, uh, one of the recipients of the ACAM's Career Leadership and Government Award just a, a few short years ago. And the three of them, with others, uh, work at that firm, and they've done some tremendous outreach, uh, again, to foreign governments, but also to institutions here and abroad. So I would direct you, if you have needs in those areas, to reach out to that firm. Also want to mention the Las Vegas conference, obviously coming up at the end of September. Danny will be reprising his comments today as a, with a special presentation on Tuesday of the conference. That'll be the 26th of September, and then he'll sit down with me after that for a Q&A. It's really important, I think, for AML audiences to be exposed to individuals that have done so much uh, to to pres preserve what we know is important in the AML space. The preservation of what we do as AML professionals, it can never be overstated. And so when we have the opportunity to hear from a Chip Ponce or Juan or now Danny Glazer, take advantage of that 
And also, when you come to the conference, as I will say when we're there, speak and share information with each other. One of the things that's so important to ACAMS is the networking. And you'll see that full force uh, in a few weeks in Vegas. Until then, if you have uh, questions, please go to our website. If you uh, want to stay up to speed on all the issues that uh, not only we're covering, but your peers and colleagues are, please go to our discussion forums. And also, I would uh, be remiss if I didn't mention uh, acamstoday.org, which is the website dedicated to all the content that's so important uh, to all of us that try to stay as current as we can with all the different changes going on, obviously, in the United States and globally. This is John Byrne for AML Now. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time.